It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio, and thank you very much for joining me. Last week, if you were listening to the show, you recall that I talked quite a bit about energy policy and how often energy policy can lead to a lot of funding coming for conservation and for natural resource work because of the uh, mitigation that energy companies have to do when they engage in in policy and when they engage in activities. And they, I talked about the Keystone Pipeline. I talked about uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, etc. Well, this week, uh, just to continue that theme for a, for a moment, a federal judge ruled that the uh, Biden administration could not end. Uh, the drilling and leasing of uh, federal lands in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by just issuing an executive order. And it struck me, uh, the funding for so much of conservation comes from something called the Land and Water Conservation Fund, otherwise known as LWCF. Land and Water Conservation Fund was just permanently reauthorized during the last months of the Trump administration in a political deal that had very strange bedfellows, if you may recall, conservative Republicans voting for the expenditure of $900 million a year for conservation interests because it was good politics in the states in which they were running for the U.S. Senate, both in Colorado and in Montana, where the spending of funds for wildlife habitat is, is, is very popular. So the Land and Water Conservation Fund, the funding for it comes from the excise taxes on oil and gas drilling on federal lands. So the idea that we are now going to basically try to strangle any new drilling, prohibit any new drilling on federal lands flies in the face of Who's going to pay then for the Land and Water Conservation Fund? Without the excise taxes on oil and gas drilling on federal lands, the Land and Water Conservation Fund doesn't have any money. The future that is projected by a number of, of entities is that we should end oil and gas drilling on federal lands. On one hand, we're going to end it. And on the other, we're going to expect those revenues to exist to pay for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is the single most important federal program for financing work on the outdoors in America. It doesn't work. It, it cannot, you cannot have it both ways. Either we're going to have energy development on federal lands and we're going to create a large revenue stream to fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund, $900 million a year, or we're not going to have energy drilling on federal lands, and there will be no money for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. 
that that is the choice ultimately down the road that we're being faced with if we stop drilling on federal lands. I think the conservation community recognizes by and large that the extraction of energy from federal lands can be done in a way that does not harm the environment if it's done in areas that are not ecologically sensitive. And the entire conservation community slobbers at the federal trough at the thought of $900 million a year coming their way for doing conservation work. So we're going to figure out in the near term how this is all going to play out, but it is quite a dichotomy uh, and, and quite a turn, frankly, from just a year ago. And I'm not saying that I'm for drilling on federal lands or I'm opposed to it. I'm just pointing out that this is a case where we can't have it both ways. Either we're going to have the money from excise taxes or we aren't. And Congress will have to decide what happens if we don't. So that's kind of the end of my thoughts on on energy production for a while. I want to switch to something that has been in the news recently. But for those of us who've been following this, this has been brewing for, um, for over a year. There is a whopper of a drought in the northwest of the United States, in the west, and on the prairies of Canada. It began last year. Uh, anyone who follows migratory birds, particularly waterfowl, know that last year was not a terribly good year production-wise, uh, even though there were not the official U.S. Fish and Wildlife Surveys to, to show this, um, people in the field knew it. This year, once again, we do not have official surveys because of COVID. Americans can't go to Canada to fly the transects. Canadian Wildlife Service is not flying the transects. In the United States, some states are. The state of North Dakota did, for example. And the report they released last week, dreadful. Among the, wor- the single worst reports they've ever released in the last, well, it is the, it is the worst report that they've released since 1993, which is quite a long time, almost 30 years, they have not released a drought report on the wetlands of North Dakota, such as the one that came out two weeks ago, 10 days ago. It showed that wetland basins were down uh, some 80%. That's a huge number. And when wetland basins go down, bird populations, waterfowl, duck populations in particular go down because birds don't have a place to nest. So they keep they keep flying north. What we do know about this year is that we are going to have across the board the worst nesting season for waterfowl that we have had since 1993. Actually, since 1992, the drought, the terrible drought of the 80s and early and early 90s broke in June of, of 1993. So it is a very bad situation on the prairies, made worse by the fact that so many of the staging areas for birds coming back south in the fall are in really, really bad shape. National story is going to be coming up soon about the Klamath Basin, which is on the border of Oregon and California. It's the largest stopping over area on the west side of the Pacific Flyway. It's virtually dry. It's, it's not even a question of, of is there going to be enough water 
uh, for agriculture, there isn't any. It's a question of whether there's going to be any water when birds come south this fall, and that will lead to, could well lead to historic outbreaks of botulism on in the Klamath Basin, which, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is, is singularly the most important area for um, migratory birds coming south in the fall. And then you have the situation on top of that where um, the uh, Great Salt Lake is also at a record low. This is not good news. And I, I always on this show try to find a silver lining in what we're talking about. We are setting the table for a absolutely dreadful year for migratory birds. West of the Mississippi, it's just, it's bone dry. You cannot have a situation where you have all-time record low water levels in the Great Salt Lake of Utah, and you have all-time record low water levels in the Klamath Basin on the Oregon-California border, and not have that impact millions of shorebirds and millions of ducks and geese. Couple that with a a really a washout on the prairie breeding grounds of, of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, the Dakotas, eastern Montana. And we, we are in a tough situation and we're flying blind because there are no surveys on a national basis, international basis being done to tell us really what all this means quantitatively. But I can tell you as I head to break, I've talked to just farmers that I've known for years all across the prairies and duck hunters and wildlife biologists and birders, and everyone's saying the same thing. This is as bad as we've ever seen it. I'll take a break now. I'll come back with a much happier story, and that story will be about what's happening with lobsters on the East Coast, and then a couple of the things to do with the falling water levels in Lake Michigan, which are, are most welcome. Thanks so much for listening. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. In the field, hunters need to be alert, sense the environment around them and know exactly where they are, communicate seamlessly with their dogs. And when it comes to pickup trucks, you want the same qualities. The all-new Chevy Silverado comes with an available 4G Wi-Fi hotspot for seamless communication. It's designed to handle the toughest loads with advanced trailering technology, tough on the road and off. And the all-new design gives you more cargo space than the competition. Chevy Silverado is the most dependable, longest-lasting, full-size pickup on the road. Plus, there's never been a better time to see your local Chevy dealer about the Big Fix lease. It's an amazing lease deal that can lower your monthly payments and give you more Chevy, all for less money. That's a treasure hunt. So head to your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and see why Chevy is the number one best-selling brand in Chicagoland, now eight years running. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. I'm going to move from the drought of the American West and the prairies to lobsters and the, and the price of lobsters along the East Coast and especially in Maine. Why is this a story for the Great Outdoors? Because it goes to show that 
it really goes to show how discombobulated right now our entire supply chain is. And, and lobstermen are independent-minded individuals. The lobster industry is about as low-tech as it gets. All the lobster boats are pretty much independent operators. And they go and get lobsters when they feel like it, and they, they don't get lobsters when they don't feel like it. It's really, it's really kind of that simple. So it's going on in Maine. Is the price of lobsters has reached record highs because the demand has reached record highs, and the supply chain is not there. If you were in the lobster fishing business during the, the pandemic, you weren't doing very well because restaurants were closed, and restaurants are the largest, single largest source uh, seller of lobsters. Restaurants are opening up. Tourists are flocking back to the coast of Maine, and a lot of lobstermen haven't gone back to work yet. So we have a shortage of lobsters. Probably the first time in many, many years that the lobster situation has been such that the demand <laughs> so outstrips the supply. But that's what's going on. And if you if you try to buy a lobster recently, and you're wondering why it's so expensive. I talked to a couple lobstermen this past week uh, in Maine, and and they said, you know, we we're going to go back to work, uh, but the but the, simply the demand is is so great that even if we caught a lot of lobsters, we couldn't meet the demand. So there's a as there's a shortage in many things. Well, there happens to be a shortage of of Maine lobsters of all things. Also, we're looking at renaming. The Asian carp. I thought about this headline and the thought that we rename the fish. Of course, Chilean bass is actually a monk toothfish. So if you went to a restaurant and you had the choice of ordering a monk toothfish or a Chilean bass, which are one and the same, you're going to order the Chilean bass, simply a branding situation. Asian carp, no one's going to restaurants to order Asian carp. So there's a an effort underway to come up with a new name, something that people will think is good for their palate, not going to change the taste of the fish, and something that they can sell. If we're going to get a commercial value out of the exploding Asian carp, carp population, we, we, we certainly need to change its name. But I, I, for one, have eaten Asian carp. I remember it very, very well. It was nearly 20 years ago in Bill Cullerton, and I went to the Hilton Hotel in downtown Chicago to have Asian carp. The chef at the Hilton was a friend of Bill Cullerton's, and he was trying to figure out if it was possible for him to actually cook and serve carp and at the Hilton Hotel because there were so many and people were so determined that they wanted to um, that they wanted to have get rid of these carp. So Bill Cullerton and I went down for a taste testing and we sat in the big dining room at the Hilton Hotel and we were served Asian carp. It was terrible. We told the chef it's very bony. Asian carp is, well, it's a lot like pike. It, it had a tremendous number of bones, just hundreds of tiny little bones. And the chef commented on how difficult it was. He said, I can't debone these. There's just too many bones. So Bill Collerton and I picked our way through the bones of the Asian carp and had a meal of it. 
And we left there believing that Asian carp may end up in a lot of cat food and dog food and fertilizer and all kinds of uses, but we didn't see it becoming a staple of the uh, restaurant industry. And, and it has not become a staple of the restaurant industry. That's the reason why. It, it is a very bony fish. And unless there's a way to process it, I don't see that changing the name to something that is far more marketable and people go to a restaurant and go, oh, I'd love to have that. That sounds great. I don't think it's going to happen. It's not a very good fish. At least that was my experience then. And if there's some chefs listening this morning, undoubtedly there are, or there's some fishermen listening this morning who've been able to figure out how to cook Asian carp and make them taste good, I would love to know about it. Because maybe there is a way that we can have a commercial value for, for, for humans for a fish that is ruining our waterways all across the country. In the meantime, Asian carp are being used for fertilizer and cat food and all kinds of things, but not for human consumption. There'll be more on the renaming of the Asian carp, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. We'll see what happens. And lastly, I'm going to talk for just a moment about the falling levels of Lake Michigan. After record highs, this is truly welcome. And what it's also showing is that some of the damage that's been done as a result of the record high lake levels these past few years. But it's nice to have a few beaches back. Who knows how long this will last? But we are in a period, a cycle now, where not only is the lake level falling, but we're seeing lakes around the region fall that are dependent on groundwater, which is one of the underwater aquifers, as we're having a dry summer, but also the falling of Lake Michigan affects the aquifers, and we're definitely seeing a lessening there of lake levels. So that is good news. We can use a bit of a lower lake level at this point in time. We certainly don't want to go back to where we were 10 years ago when we had to dredge harbors, but we'll take this right now. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a great week in the great outdoors. This is Charlie Potter in the Outdoor Voice of America and Chicago, 720 WGN.